as we step into the scriptures together, let's ask the Lord to illuminate us and his word. God, we are grateful for a chance to uh, sit under your word, to have it brought to us by Pastor Jim. Uh, Would you help us to see you clearly through it, to understand uh, more of you and your character through what we see um, in this early part of David's life? In Jesus' name, amen. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succo, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succo and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail, him, fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this, with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, deep for his father, and from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The word of the Lord. If you only know the David and Goliath story from a children's Bible, that last verse may have surprised you. They usually leave that one out. <laughs> We're continuing today in our series on the life of David, and we've come to what is probably the most famous part of his life and one of the most well-known stories of the Bible. And so let's get right into it. There are three things that we learn from this story that are crucial for understanding the message of the Bible and what it means to be a Christian. of a champion we need and how our champion wins the battle. Let's look at each one of these. Why we need a champion, what kind of a champion we need, and how our champion wins the battle. First, why we need a champion. This whole account is based on the concept of the champion. Literally, in Hebrew, uh, the word champion means the man between, the ishbenayim. And that, that describes the idea pretty well. The champion is the man who stands between the two armies. So on the hill on the one side is the army of Israel led by Saul, and on the other side is the Philistine army. And in the middle is the valley of Elah where the, the champions come out to fight the duel. In Goliath, the Philistines have the ultimate champion. If I was the kind of preacher uh, who used slides, I'd put up a picture right now here of Thanos, for those of you who are Marvel fans. Uh, Thanos is the giant supervillain who wants to destroy the universe, universe and, and Goliath uh, might not be at that level, but, but he's a giant. He's extraordinarily tall. Uh, he's six cubits in a span, about nine foot seven. And the author spends an unusual number of words describing his, his armor, uh, his helmet, his coat of mail that alone weighs 125 pounds, uh, the armor on his legs, his javelin, his spear point. The spear point alone is about 15 pounds. And notice at the end of verse 7, his shield bearer went before him. You know, he's not even carrying his shield. He's got a guy who's doing that for him. 
And the point of all of this is to paint a picture for us that if we were looking for a champion to go out to battle for us, that you'd want a champion like Goliath. You can understand why Saul and all of Israel, when they hear the challenge of Goliath, that they are dismayed and, and greatly afraid. They're trying to face him. Because the Israelites have to put up their own champion to face him. And the fate of the nation hangs on whom they choose. If he fails, they fail. If he is victorious, they are victorious. Now, you may think that this idea of a champion going out to fight a battle on behalf of, of others is uh, kind of antiquated, uh, but I still believe it's very relevant for us. And, and let me explain. If you come to, into my office, which uh, I welcome anyone to do anytime, I'd love to see you there, you'll find that on my uh, wall, one of the photos that I have on the wall is of the golf course Pebble Beach uh, in California. It's an iconic picture of the seventh hole looking out over the Pacific Ocean. And I, and I inherited the photograph from my father, who was an avid golfer. And I'm not a golfer, but uh, the photograph reminds me of time that I spent with my dad on golf courses and watching golf on TV. And because of this, I've always paid sort of attention to golf news. And, and some time ago, I read this article about golf in the New York Times Sports Magazine. And, and, it, and it speaks, I think, to this issue of the role that champions play in our lives. And I put a quote from it on page four. And there you'll see that the author says this. There's a kind of spiritual covenant in all sports that binds spectators and players, but which in golf takes on truly mystical proportions, if only because the terms of the game, an absurd struggle against nature and oneself, offer so many uncanny parallels with the terms of conscious life. The covenant holds that when an athlete prevails, we prevail. When he or she falls short, we're diminished too. Not just any athlete is fit for this peculiar service. Professional golf coughs up a winner every week. Players of consummate skill who possess every talent but the one that matters, which is the great champion's capacity to carry us beyond ourselves. In golf, maybe in all sports, such a figure comes along but once or twice in a lifetime. You follow a track of moonlight on the water and maybe there, where it ends, is someone who has what it takes. Now, he's, he's talking here about Tiger Woods, uh, writing in June 2008. And if you know anything about Tiger Woods' story, it was just 18 months later, in December 2009, that Woods' life and marriage and public reputation fell apart. Uh, his infidelities were exactly recovered. Now, my point is not to talk about Tiger Woods, but to raise a question. Are we still looking for a champion? The Bible's answer is yes. And this is why we identify so strongly with athletes or politicians or, or other great heroes, but they are always disappointing us and falling short of our expectations. If this is true, what kind of champion should we be looking for? What kind of champion do we need?
Is it someone like Goliath who comes onto the battlefield with confidence and arrogance? He's afraid of nothing and no one. He curses his enemies. The answer that the scriptures give is no. That we need someone like David, who's a very different kind of person. And it's important to see how David contrasts with Goliath. He's not the complete opposite of Goliath. It's not that Goliath is mighty and strong and David is a weakling. Now, David is young, but he is also courageous. He comes to Saul and he volunteers to represent Israel on the battlefield. And he says he may not be a man of war, but he has killed lions and bears. And when David comes with this offer, Saul, who, as the king, you know, should have been representing Israel, Saul thinks that David needs to become more like Goliath by wearing his armor and, and using his sword. But Saul is mistaken. It's not just that David needs to supplement his courage with better military equipment. David's strength and courage come not from himself, not from his own abilities, but from his trust in God's power to deliver him. Verse 37. The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. It's David's faith that sets him apart. Notice, this doesn't mean that he doesn't have some natural gifts or, or weapons at his disposal, but he's not relying on those things. He's relying on the Lord. And this times, daily in his verbal exchange uh, with Goliath, uh, four times David mentions the Lord. Verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Verse 47, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Do you see the point? God is the real champion here in this story, and David is pointing us to him. This has a lot of implications for the kind of human champions that we hold up in esteem. We need people of strength and courage and character in our lives, but most of all, we need people who point us beyond themselves to the source of all strength and power. Let me offer uh, an illustration of, of what I mean. One of my favorite books is called At the Heart of the White Rose, and it's a collection of letters and diary entries by two German college students named Hans and Sophie Scholl, who lived in Germany in the 1930s and 40s under Nazi rule. And in 1943, they were both convicted of high treason and executed by guillotine after they were discovered distributing anti-Nazi leaflets at the University of Munich. Sophie was 21 years old and Hans was 24. And in high school, both of them had been members of the Hitler Youth. But in college, 
they and a group of friends began to meet secretly in the home of a Christian professor who encouraged them to question what was happening in Germany and to follow their conscience. With other students, they formed a nonviolent resistance movement that they called the White Rose, and they began to pass out leaflets that questioned Hitler's rule. It was very dangerous, and it required enormous courage. But when you read Sophie's diaries and letters, you discover that she was motivated by a deep faith. And this doesn't mean that it was an easy faith. Listen to what she wrote in one letter to a friend. I'm still so remote from God that I don't even sense his presence when I pray. Sometimes when I utter God's name, in fact, I feel like sinking into a void. It isn't a frightening or dizzy-making sensation. It's nothing at all, and that's far more terrible. But prayer is the only remedy for it. And however many little devils scurry around inside, hands can no longer feel cling to the rope God has thrown me in Jesus Christ, even if my numb hands can no longer feel it. Please remember me in your prayers. I won't forget you either. Sophie Scholl was a young woman who reflected the character of David. She wasn't a super Christian. She struggled to feel God's presence. But instead of turning away from God in these moments, she chose to turn toward him and what he had revealed in the person and work of Jesus. You know, I didn't grow up in the church. I, I wasn't raised with these Bible stories. Uh, I didn't know the David and Goliath story until I was 20. But I'm told that this story has often been told to kids growing up in the church as if David is the hero whom we're supposed to emulate by being strong and brave like him, facing our fears and defeating whatever Goliath uh, we find in our life. And it's important to say that if we teach our kids that that is the meaning of this story, we turn it upside down. The whole point is not that David is the hero, but that God is the hero. That's what David says over and over again. The battle is the Lord's. Do you see what difference this makes? If David is the hero for us to copy, then everything depends on us. Your fate depends on your success. That's a lot of pressure. And if you do well, you'll feel really good. But when you fail, it will feel like the bottom has dropped out of your life. Or, if you make someone else your great hero, great hero, your, your champion, a love interest or a leader, then that pressure is on them. And when they fail, which they will inevitably do, you will be devastated. But when, like David, your champion is God himself, then that changes everything. You don't have to be ashamed of your strengths. You can receive them for what they are, as good gifts meant to be used to serve others, but they won't be everything for you. You can relate to other people and not expect them to be everything for you either. Instead, you can trust God with your successes 
and with your failures. And you can pray like so, even when clinging to the rope that God has thrown you in Jesus Christ, even when you feel like a mess on the inside. This brings us to our last point today, how our champion wins the battle. How does David defeat Goliath? Not with a sword or spear, but with a sling. Now, a sling was a long piece of fabric that you could put a stone in and, and swing it around until you let go of one end and the stone comes shooting out. And this could be a deadly weapon, and David was a pretty good shot. But compared to Goliath's weapons, the sling was insignificant. The point here is that the decisive blow comes through something and someone relatively weak. A young shepherd boy without any armor, using only a sling and a stone, takes down the giant Philistine warrior. This shows us one of the central themes of the whole Bible. Over and over, God chooses the youngest and the weakest to advance his purposes. Jacob had a limp. Moses was afraid of public speaking. Gideon hid in a wine press. Jeremiah struggled with depression. When Isaiah describes the Messiah, he says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The whole story of the Bible points us to Jesus as the new and greater David who defeats our enemies, not through great strength, but through weakness. As the son of God, he had all power and glory, but he made himself weak in suffering self-sacrificial love. On the cross, what appears to be a defeat, he turns into victory. His death, and so the death of death. John Calvin says, and so, fighting by, and so by fighting hand to hand with the power of the devil, with the horror of death, he won the victory over them and triumphed so that now in our death, we should not fear those things which our prince has swallowed up. If Jesus is your prince and champion, then you don't have to be afraid that there is some depth to which he will not descend. There is no mess that's too messy for him. There is no sin that he will not forgive. There is no suffering in which he cannot work his power. His power is made perfect in weakness. And if you believe that he died and rose again, then you can trust him with your life no matter what you face, now or in the future. Let me end with this. My favorite children's Bible is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I love how the author Sally Lloyd-Jones begins uh, in the first chapter. And let me read to you what she says. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. 
The Bible does have some heroes in it, uh, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes back from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. In Jesus, we find our great hero who gave up everything and made himself weak to rescue those he loves. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. From all our enemies, and especially the power of sin and death, we confess today how often we seek to rely on our own strength and power rather than what you offer us as a free gift of grace in Christ. We look to him today and we pray that you would fill us with his spirit so that we may love as you love and give as you give and serve as you serve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.